The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. We're about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited and honored to introduce to you my very special guest this week, Alan Shuptrine. Alan, welcome to A Current Life. Thank you, Jimmy. It's great to be here, and I'm humbled and honored you asked me. Well, before we begin, I'd like to give our audience a proper introduction of you, Alan. Alan Shuptrine is a nationally acclaimed watercolorist, realist, and master craftsman whose subject matter focuses on the land and people of the mountain south. Following in his father Hubert Shuptrine's legacy, Alan's 27-year career as a watercolorist continues to win him national awards for his realistic and often emotionally evocative paintings of Appalachia. Alan's work and that of his father have inspired me in understanding the human spirit and I must say have truly touched my heart. It's indeed an honor to have you with us, Alan, and I hope to get to know you over the many years ahead. And I thank my dear friend Steve Bettis for his introduction of us and, again, my best to your wife, Bonnie. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm I'm so blessed to have so many good friends like Steve and certainly blessed to have my lovely and beautiful wife, Bonnie, and my two boys, Jake and Ben, uh, who have enabled me for so many years to get to where I am today, and it's been a wonderful journey. Well, you know, we often, we, we start our shows off, this is a journey about kind of the ups and downs of life and how it, what it takes for us to get to whatever each of us terms our success. It's really meant to, to view the journey. So I want to start with your early years growing up. You lived in over 20 cities as a boy and had been to a number of schools. How did that affect your childhood? Well, it was difficult because every time you made friends, uh, it was time to pick up and move again. And so I guess for me, being naturally introverted, uh, which is what my wife says, um, it was uh, it brought me out of my shell and uh, certainly uh, forced me to to make friends and and to and to be able to pick up and move on. Uh, my father, who was a nationally acclaimed watercolorist, uh, was never really comfortable where where we lived, and so he moved us around from place to place so that he could find different subject matter um, and um, and you know it was just a it was just really just a wonderful childhood we We lived everywhere from the Bahamas to maine uh to western North Carolina and various cities in the southeast and and several cities in the northeast so it was it was really a wonderful childhood. Did you get a lot of advance notice when you were leaving and 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 having the ability to have seen so much of the world at such a young age 
it must have had a profound effect on you on how you saw the world and and those experiences I'm sure have carried over to your uh, career in art and and to your painting which has touched so many people well yes uh, you're correct there um, you know uh, my father uh, spent 46 years chronicling the dying south most of the cities that we lived in were in the south um, uh, the Bahamas was early on when I was six months old. Uh, my father moved our whole family to the Bahamas, two dogs, three kids, and uh, we basically lived in a Volkswagen bus for several days in the Bahamas until we found a place to live in Nassau. Drove around for two days and, and finally found this little cottage to live in, and, it, and the rent was $75 a month for a little tiny crabgrass front yard uh, right on the beach. And it was very bohemian back then. Uh, we, we lived with very little means. We, we were quite poor. And uh, I can tell you that the early days were uh, the lifestyle was where we lived off the land. Um, we had a Haitian yardman named Philippe who practiced voodoo. And in exchange for my father teaching him how to use a lawnmower, Philippe agreed to make us a fish trap that we could feed our family with. And so he collected palm fronds uh, in and around the area and wove together a nine-foot-long fish trap, which my dad would bait every morning with a chicken neck, and he would swim out about 75 yards offshore and, and sink it in about 35 feet of water. So we literally lived off the land. We ate red snapper and trigger fish and lobster, and those were the, those were the days. You know, I, when we had the opportunity through our, our mutual friend Steve Bettis to for me to get to know you and have dinner with you. I was so touched by and inspired by you. And, and But you had such a, just a peaceful, calming effect uh, immediately. I mean, I, I, I knew instantly that I wanted you to come on the show, and you um, honored me by agreeing to do it. And, and then you presented me with a book, which is entitled Home to Jericho, by your father, Hubert Shoptrine, which he had signed. And I was, uh, I, I have that right here in front of me and cherish it. And, you know, I, I, uh, I re- it really touched me because I really felt as I looked at the pictures that he did as well as understanding and spending the time with you that you all had such an incredible appreciation for, for, for life and for people and for, you know, what so many of us, so many of us are, are so different and, and, and how we look and, and what we do and, and our experiences. And I really felt that the human spirit came through, uh, to me in the, in the book and in the works that you've, that you've done. And I felt that everybody around the, the country and around the globe, because this show goes into about 180 countries, I wanted them to get to know you and I wanted them to, to understand what I saw in you. And, and, and what I've been curious about is really what was it or what is it about the South Appalachia mountain ranges that really inspired so much of your art? Well, you know, um, as Maya Angelou said, there is not a greater agony than bearing an untold story. So I will tell you the story. We basically uh, started out, or my life started out in the Bahamas, and then from there we moved on to uh, at least 20 other cities uh, to get to where we are today. Um, but um, early on, I think in the formative years, I was exposed to the people of Appalachia, the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of western North Carolina, where I spent uh, really my happiest memories. And my father at the time was working on a book uh, with uh, James Dickey, which was 
um, published by Oxmoor House, the publishers of Southern Living Magazine. And James Dickey, author of Deliverance, uh, was at the height of his career. Uh, they had already begun filming Deliverance when the book deal was made. And so the publishers of Southern Living got my father together, who was the painter of the South, and then they got Dickey together, who was the writer of the South and the poet laureate. And um, they made magic together. Uh, they agreed to go their separate ways for three and a half years and, and to paint the South. And uh, they got back together in the end and in the editing room when they designed the book. They put the text with the images of my father's, his watercolors, where it made sense. And the book uh, really made history. Uh, it sold over a million copies in its first edition and was nominated for a Pulitzer. And I remember those days of, of really growing up in rustic western North Carolina and having an attachment to the people and and really respecting all different stations of life. Uh, there are people there in Appalachia that are tied to the land. And my father, unlike so many that said you can never go back home, my father always believed you could. <laughs> and there are young people today that move away and they're so ashamed to move back home into their father's house. I think my Thomas father, Wolf said that, didn't he? Yeah, I think he book. did, yeah. yeah. And uh, my father said, no, you can go back home, and you probably should. Well, so, you know, your father was a very famous artist uh, who had great influence on the world, and, and he obviously had great influence on you. And, you know, what was he like uh, as a father and also... Was he supportive of you growing up to have an artistic career, as well as those of your, I think you have one sister and one brother, who also uh, developed careers in art? What, give us a little insight on, on that relationship. And, you know, maybe uh, all of us go through struggles. I know in my own growing up, uh, I had a very dominant father who, who wanted me to, knew exactly what he wanted me to be, and I wanted to do the exact opposite. So uh, I did not. I would say have his support. Uh, it's just the way it was, uh, you know. Uh, and everybody deals with it differently. I probably was not very effective in dealing with it because I just immediately did the opposite. But you know, I learned from it, and through that, I'm trying very hard to not head do that with my children. So I'm curious yeah. what your relationship was like with your father in that regard, and 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 kind of give us some insight into that. Sure. Uh, well, my dad was my best friend, no question about it. Wow. Um, you know, early on, um, we were all raised to be uh, outdoors people. And uh, it, I, I remember uh, my first four years of my childhood, I don't even think I owned a pair of shoes. Um, it was a kind of lifestyle where my father would pretty much turn us loose in the mornings, and he would go out and paint either in plein air or spend the whole day in his studio. And we were left to just run free. Um, but he was a wonderful dad. Uh, he took me fishing and hunting all the time and taught me to love the outdoors and taught me to love art and uh, encouraged me to participate in his journey uh, with his paintings and so forth. Um, however, the three of us kids, uh, me being the youngest, we were never really encouraged to go into art because my father wanted to save us from a really long and hard struggle to make a name for ourselves, and, and he wanted us to have a much easier life. And so he, he did all he could to discourage us from going into art. But, um, you know, I, I just simply couldn't help myself. It's in my blood and the same way with my siblings as well. 
So uh, it was a wonderful experience, and uh, and my dad was uh, just the true patriarch that you could imagine. Um, he was uh, he he loved life. Uh, he he just had an exuberance about him. He was always the life of the party, and he was a very very passionate man. So the old adage that artists have to suffer in order to paint best. Do you agree with that? Well, I do think you have to suffer some. You know, my father always used to say it takes two components to be a successful artist. One is that you have to have a good drawing hand. I mean, that's a given, you know, because painting, in essence, is is like drawing with color. And the second component that you have to have is a little luck. You know, we've all known somebody that just has an amazing voice or, you know, is just an amazing writer or what have you. And... They never really get discovered enough to where they can charge enough for their work to have an easier life. And so it is a struggle. You know, you have to have a little luck. You have to find that one person or that one opportunity which opens up the doors and gives you some sort of notoriety. And for my father, that one opportunity was Jericho, the South Beheld, in 1974. Well, um... I mean, the, the first of all, the, the 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 work stands out as probably one of the great classics of all time. And in reading through and looking at the pictures and the script that goes with it and everything, you really feel like you can understand a different part of the world that probably a lot of us are not exposed to, you know, around the world. And, and right, right. And, well, and, now, well, now the book you have is Home to Jericho, and that's the second book, which was done in '87. Okay. I want you to see the first book too, and which was written uh, by James Dickey in 1974. Just a fabulous book. Well, I'll have to get that because I have not put this down since you gave it to me. So <laughs> well, that's good. You know, we'll have occasionally to do, I break we'll away to, to do a little bit of work, but basically <laughs> I, every single page, you know, when people see it, it's I. I want to frame every single page. So I mean, I, I don't have. I mean, for our listeners, I, I would say that I've probably not had. Great exposure to what you do, but I've always had a deep appreciation for it because I've always felt that it took a certain spirit and a certain kind of mindfulness and consciousness to be able to do what you do, and I've admired it. And so when well, I come you. across it, it really touches me because I can't do it. And, and I love when other people can do things that I can't do because then I can only learn, and that's what we're here on this planet for. So. Well, thank you. Yeah, You know, the, uh, talking about the struggle, you know, my father always struggled, just like Andrew Wyeth did, to to get, be exposed and to um, uh, to have some sort of level of acceptance for realism. Because at the time when Wyeth was uh, at his um, at, at great popularity uh, around 1970, uh, modernism, contemporary modernism, was still really you know uh, in the know. It was still really a fad. And museums really weren't looking for realism. And so, just like Wyeth, my father came behind him, and he had the same challenges. You know, uh, so did Norman Rockwell and many other realists of the 20th century. So that's another challenge that he had to overcome. The, um, well, your father in his early career painted with oil, uh, which is vastly different from painting with watercolor. And your father switched mediums and was innovative with his technique. Can you tell, talk to us a little bit about that? I can. Oil uh, generally is, is applied with uh, putting in all the darks first. You know, uh, when, you, when you take an oil workshop, 
you're asked to squint and look at your subject or look at the landscape and pick out the darkest dark, and you apply that first to the painting. And, and then you put in your mid-tones, and then at the very end of the painting, you might finish with pure white. Whereas in watercolor, there is no white paint. And so when he changed from oil to watercolor in 1969 and made it his primary medium, uh, he had to give up all the, the various different techniques of, of you know, finishing with white because there is no white in watercolor, and that is why most people consider watercolor the hardest medium the most challenging. Uh, it takes a tremendous amount of planning because if you want a white highlight on the end of someone's nose, you have to save that area for the very end of the painting. And if you dare paint that in with pigment, you'll never get it back out. So, um, so it takes a tremendous amount of planning ahead of time from the very first brushstroke to do a watercolor. What caused him, I assume it was part of the progression, but what really caused your father to switch to, to watercolor? As well, there was, there was no doubt it was Andrew Wyeth. Um, his influence was so strong on my father that we actually moved to Maine in 1970. We were just going to go up there for about a three-week vacation in the early summer. Uh, to, um, what actually turned into an entire summer-long experience and then the rest of the year. And we were homeschooled by the next-door neighbor. We moved to this little town called Owl's Head, which is about six miles from Port Clyde. Port Clyde is the summer where Wyeth used to summer. Uh, so it was a city where he used to summer. And, um, and he would, uh, my father would, using that as uh, home base, he would go out and walk the docks and wait on the lobstermen to come in. And he would actually paint these paintings in plein air. And then he would go back to his studio and finish the final um, uh, major painting, a larger sheet of that of that same uh, of that same image. And uh, it was uh, it was right back then. Let's see, 1970. Yeah, living in in a little tiny cottage below a lighthouse. That he found watercolor. He actually announced to the family one morning. He said, "You know, I'm going to go out and paint a watercolor." And we all said, "Okay, great." And he said, "Yeah, I'll see you at dinner time." So he went out and, and painted a watercolor and came back. And in actuality, about five years ago, a lady brought me that painting and uh, offered wow. it to me for sale. And if so, I had the coins to buy it, I would have. Does the watercolor so so painting with watercolors takes a lot longer because of the planning and because of the detail that has to go into it and 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 the and the and the non-use of, of white paint. I mean, is that basically? Well, I wouldn't say that it takes longer. Um, there are oil painters that spend months and months and months on their on their works, and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, you know personal um, technique and and uh, and application. But um, but it takes a, a tremendous amount of care, uh, so as to plan ahead where where the brightness of your painting is going to be, where the light is going to be, because you cannot paint that paper in with pigment and then uh, somehow lift it completely back out in the end. Um, watercolor is basically pigment that is suspended in gum arabic. And the paper itself, which is cotton rag fiber, it has a number of other agents in it, such as starch and gelatin and alum, which acts as a mordant and holds the pigment in the, fi in the fiber of the paper. And when the, when the pigment swims into the into the paper fibers 
it gets locked into there, and, that, and if it's a real staining color, you can't get that color back out. So, um, so it does take careful planning. What happens if you make a mistake? Well, sometimes you can lift the color back out, but in most cases you have to start over. Oh, my God. Yeah, and uh, my father used to have this thing. We used to call it start-over-itis, where he would bring his painting down to the kitchen for the whole family to approve before dinner time. And he would lean it up against the refrigerator, and we'd all step back and look at it in awe, sometimes with tears in our eyes. Wow. And uh, But if any one of us, usually my mom, who's very critical, if any one of us you know, said, well, don't you think you know, maybe you've got her eyes too blue, or don't you think her hands look a little bit too tan, or what have you, my father would go back to his studio and work on that spot. And sometimes he would mess it up, and then we'd start all over. Was he in a bad mood when that happened? Oh, of course. Of course he was in a bad mood. He, he, was, he, he aimed to please, and he aimed to please the whole family. Well, so, I mean, if you had had a family of Ted, you, he really would have been in trouble. No question. You know, you've heard the old adage, it takes two people to paint a painting, one to paint it and the other one to remove the paintbrush. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, sometimes watercolors can, can look too worked over, you know. Um, and so to keep it fresh and... and uh, and to keep it uh, very painterly. You know, sometimes it takes a muse or someone else to pull that paintbrush from your hand. And my muse, of course, is my wife, Bonnie. Um, she knows when to tell me to stop. And, uh, and it's a wonderful thing to have her around. She is, she is just the ultimate muse. She has enabled me to do so much. Well, I can tell you and our listeners, because I had the opportunity to spend time with Bonnie, that... I thought the two of you had an incredibly beautiful and complimentary and uh, on every level spiritual deep relationship with respect and everything else. She was, a, she is a remarkable uh, person, and uh, I, uh, again, she's also responsible for this interview and the opportunity for us to hopefully develop a long-term relationship. Uh, uh, she's a special person, and you're both very lucky to have each other. I, I can attest to that. I'm curious. Did you sit and watch your father paint? Did you actually sit down next to him? Would he allow that to happen or not? Oh, yes. Uh, early on as a toddler, I used to sit at his feet, and, and I, was just, I would watch in amazement at how his Kalinsky sable brush would go into the water, and then he would tap the metal ferrule against the side of the, of the jar, and it would ring and that, that ring was a constant tone, and while that tone was going on, he would have enough time to, to go into the, into the palette, mix his color, and apply several brush strokes to the, to the paper. And by that point, it was, it was kind of a rhythmic thing. By that point, the ring was dying down, and then he would freshen up the ring again by dipping the brush back into the water, and there was this wonderful rhythm going on, and it was kind of hypnotic. And I would sit there for hours on end and watch him do this. And one of the things that fascinated me was how the color that he was mixing on the palette was so unlike the color that actually uh, went onto the paper. Because when it goes onto the paper and mixes with the color beside it, it becomes something else. And this is what my father taught me. He taught me two main techniques in watercolor. One is called wet and wet, where you wet the paper you pre-wet it with a clean brush and clean water. 
and then you go and pick up pigment and you apply it into the wetness and then you let the you let the pigment swim and you get these wonderful effects where pigments swim together and that's a very well, uncontrolled type of watercolor and then on top of that, in order to control that, and, and you've seen some of my father's images and some of mine as well, in order to to, to have something that looks realistic, uh, you use a tighter method, which is dry brush. And dry brush is where you pick up mostly pigment, very little water, and apply it to the to the paper in either little small cross hatches, much like egg tempera, or you splay the brush out like a corn broom. And you sort of scumble the the pigment onto the paper in circular or crisscross strokes, uh, much like you'd apply uh, pigment with a crayon or with pastel, and it sort of takes you back to your childhood. Well, I'm uh, I have one question, and I, I want to give a little plug uh, here. Was your mother supportive of your father's career choice and lifestyle? Because you know when you hear about the twenty cities and you hear about living all over the country and and the way you lived and living off the land and, and just the, 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 I mean, it's really unique. I mean, it probably was the way in, in olden days people lived and, you know, they, they, they really truly lived and worked together and everything they, they either won or lost together, which I'm a big believer in. You win, you have the same agenda and win or lose depending upon what happens. But what was she like in terms of her support for your father and in terms of his career choice and lifestyle? And, well, and my mother was, she was madly in love with my father, and um, she didn't mind the real bohemian lifestyle, although her mother uh, never really thought that my father was good enough for her hmm. and, and could give her what she you know, really needed out of life and whatnot, and, and that is a, a comfortable income and security and so forth. So there was, there was a long time when my father uh, was, was kind of over his mother-in-law, and that's one of the reasons why we moved to the Bahamas, so that we could just kind of get away from everything. I mean, here I was, six months old. Uh, they already had two other kids, and my father was struggling to put food on the table and, and to clothe us. And so my father basically just liquidated everything. He had about $300 left to his name, and we all loaded up in the Volkswagen microbus, drove down to Miami, and got on a ferry over to the Bahamas. And that's why we moved to Nassau. Uh, my mother, I've seen the early pictures. She was very happy with my father and, uh, and just really only sad that her own mother, you know, wasn't, uh, uh, didn't love my father as much as she did. So, no, you know, early on, you know, there was some tension there. That's probably not too dissimilar than a lot of families. I mean, I, I think what makes great marriages or great relationships is the fact that you really just got to do your thing and, Either people get on the bandwagon or they don't. I do want to give a little plug that we met down in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where you're, where you're based and where your home is, and we met through some mutual people, particularly uh, Steve and Vivian Bettis. But, you know, what struck me was the influence, and I assumed the great influence of a wonderful school down there that you're all involved in, uh, the Baylor School. And I had the, the pleasure of being able to go through and, and meet everybody and, I found it to be a remarkable journey. In fact, I'm honored that they've asked me to to come down there for a week and teach a course on, on entrepreneurship and, and various other things. So I'm looking forward to that, hopefully in the spring. But uh, your kids go there, I believe, and you've been involved there. And, and what effect 
and I imagine the art teacher is probably pretty proud of herself or himself uh, and what you're doing today. What effect did the Baylor School have on you? Well, tremendous. Um, you know, I'm making the same sacrifice that my father made years ago. Uh, my father put three kids through private school on the salary of an artist, uh, which is pretty phenomenal. Baylor is, without a doubt, the best education in the world. Uh, it, uh, I had teachers there that mentored me um, and taught me more about life than my parents did. You know, one teacher in particular was Dr. John Miller, the late John Miller, and also Major Luke Worsham, who was my biology teacher. I used to go fishing with him all the time, but Baylor is a tremendous school. It's a 422-acre facility. It has a world-class curriculum, and some of the best years of my life were built at Baylor. I graduated in 81, and uh, it was all guys back then. And about five or six years later, they went co-ed, which kind of ticked me off a little bit. I wish, wish I could have gone back. <laughs> but uh, uh, it, it truly is a magnificent experience. Um, it teaches you about life. It, it prepares you not just for college but for the world. I say when I was down there, it's got a heartbeat that is second to none, and I truly appreciate it that Steve gave me the opportunity to meet Scott and so many of the people down there. Um, obviously, it's a special place. Uh, I want to ask you before we go to break, um, would you please tell our audience where they can find your work and, and, and your website, and please state that for them because I think everybody needs to learn about you and, and see your work and, and be inspired like I am. Sure. My artist website is Alan, A-L-A-N, Shuptrine, S-H-U-P-T-R-I-N-E. That's alanshuptrine.com. And my company website, where we make handmade gilded frames and, and we do uh, restorations of period antiques and we, we do conservation of paintings and we also sell fine American art from mid-19th century to present. That website is shuptrines.com. Well, I, I appreciate that. I recommend uh, all of our listeners across the globe that to please go to that website and learn about Alan, uh, what I've learned, and, and why it was so important for me to have him on my show. Uh, it's time for us to take a short break. This is Jimmy Gould with my very special guest and friend, Alan Shuptrine, and you are listening to A Current Life brought to you by Smartwater, Ohio Midwestern College, and Ads Baseball Networks. Please stay tuned. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Do you have career aspirations that seem beyond what you think you can afford? At Ohio Midwestern College, you can transform your hard work into a bachelor's degree in business administration, education, or Christian ministries. Call 1-888-887-4300 or check out www.omw.edu to learn how you can afford a fully accredited degree today. Ohio Midwestern College. Affordable. Professional. Genuine. Our open enrollment starts today. Call us now at 1-888-887-4300 or on the web at www.omw.edu. 
That's 1-888-887-4300 or on the web at www.omw.edu. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoone will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life, uh, sponsored by Smartwater. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm here with my special guest, and very special friend, Alan Shuptrine. Alan, I want to start off uh, in this segment by asking you, what is a master gilder, and how did you come to learn the trade of, of gilding frames? Well, in college, I changed my major four times, and finally settling on anthropology, I came home to Chattanooga and still living with my parents and making that transition zone of moving out of the house and finding an apartment and finding a good job. You know, all my friends uh, went to Europe on a on a dinosaur dig, or you know, received some sort of grant money, and I didn't have any uh, at the time. So uh, I I waited around on just that one special job because I didn't want to uh, wait tables anymore. I had put myself through college, you know, doing that sort of thing, and uh, at University of Tennessee in Knoxville. So uh, coming home, needing a job, I looked around, and the first thing I wanted to do was maybe design fishing lures for a, uh, a large tackle manufacturing company. I've always loved to fish and hunt, and I'd always tied my own flies uh, since I was a little boy. And uh, one of the things I really enjoyed was trying to fool nature, fool a fish into, into striking a fly. So I interviewed at several places, and they didn't uh, have any openings as a designer. Uh, they wanted to send me out on the road and be a salesperson, and that didn't really appeal to me. So um, I basically was in, in the search for a good job, and this opportunity sort of fell into my lap. My, my father's brother, James Shuptrine, who was holding down three jobs at the time and was also my father's agent and marketeer, um, he he just simply couldn't do it anymore. He was working a full-time job, and then he was working till 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning as a gilder and a framer for my father's work. And so he decided to, to call it quits. And at the time, my father needed a framer. I needed a job, and this whole thing just seem, seemed to work out. So we bought all of his equipment, and I entered a silent, uh, I entered a partnership with my father where he was a silent partner. And uh, we bought all of my uncle's equipment, and my uncle uh, agreed to spend a couple of days with me trying to show me how to do picture framing and gilding. And at the time, that was a very, pretty much a lost art. There was very little printed literature on the, on the craft itself. 
And it still is, in a way, a lost art, because there are really only a handful of guilders in the country that, that take frame making to the extreme that we do, where we start with raw wood, we carve the frame to mimic the painting and really marry with the painting, and then we take it through a process that's over 3,500 years old in its craft. Water gilding goes all the way back to recorded history, uh, really pretty much to the second century B.C., where on Etruscan walls you, you have evidence of artisans beating gold leaf into thin sheets, and then they applied that to various different artifacts and iconry. And so... Um, so I learned the craft simply by traveling and knocking on doors, and you know I traveled to Europe and did an apprenticeship in Paris and also one in England. Uh, I joined the Society of Gilders. I asked questions in New York and Santa Fe and Los Angeles, and uh, but pretty much had to learn the craft on my own and spend time at the easel, much like an artist would. And uh, it took me about two years to get good enough to where I could actually do water gilding. Water gilding is a form of gilding where you apply it to the surface with water over gesso and burnishing bowl or clay. And uh, it's a real time-honored and time-consuming craft, but it, it produces a finish unlike any other. It's a lustrous, beautiful sheen, and there's just simply no shortcuts to it. So I want to talk about gold leaf with you because um, as you've stated to me and, and before, the art of applying and working with gold leaves really almost a lost art and you do it extremely well. Um, can you share with us the process involved in handling gold leaf? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, gold leaf is one two hundred and fifty thousandths of an inch thickness and uh, it comes in standard sheets that are three and three-eighths inches square although a lot of gold leaf now is manufactured in China, and it's about 80 millimeters square. And, um, and, and, and that's become really popular during this sort of recession that we're going through. When I first started out gilding gold, a uh, pack of gold, which is about 500 sheets, a uh, pack of gold leaf, that is, uh, was about $185. And today, really good quality gold leaf starts at about $450 for a pack of gold and can go up over a thousand depending on the thickness. Um, but it's handled with uh, a three to, you know, anywhere from a two to three inch wide brush made of squirrel hair. You can't handle it with your fingers because the oil on your skin will basically disintegrate it once your hand, your fingers touch it. Uh, it sticks immediately to your fingers because you naturally have emollients on your skin. So uh, you have to handle it with a brush. And the gold leaf is uh, applied into a bed of water, which is a, which uh, the water, which is called Gilder's liquor, is applied to the surface, and then the piece of gold leaf is laid into the water. Once that dries, usually uh, over a 24-hour period, you come back and you have to polish the gold leaf with a... With a uh, an implement called an agate burnisher. And it basically looks like a paintbrush, but on the end of it, where normally the bristles would be, you have an agate stone. And that stone is rubbed back and forth over the gold, which polishes the gold. So let me ask you, um, where at, uh, you know, when did you actually pick up the art of watercoloring? Well, uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, I've, I've been an artist all my life, um, but discouraged to, to, to go into the arts. And so, 
you know, out of respect to my father and uh, who didn't really want a confusion of the name Shuptron, uh, and he didn't want us to have a hard life. I just sort of stayed away from it. I still painted, but I never sold my works. I always gave them away. And then in the year 2000, um, I, uh, I had the pleasure of, of riding on a plane with my father out to the Bohemian Club. Uh, and uh, he was a member since 1984. And in the year 2000, I got to go with him and share that experience. And we rode on, a, on an airplane together, and I brought my little portable watercolor kit with me because I thought, wouldn't it be neat to paint a painting with him? You know, he could work on a little bit and then pass it over to me and so forth. So we asked, we asked the stewardess for some, uh, some water, and I had the little dry cake pan with me and a little piece of watercolor paper, and we painted a, a main lighthouse scene together. I have that painting in my studio today. You know, I, I, uh, I look at it sometimes for inspiration. And, uh, and it was at that moment right then and there, you know, when he complimented my work, you know, no one else was around, and he said, you know, you've really got a good talent. I like the way you've done this little area over here. And we would critique each other, and it was the best four-hour plane ride I ever had. I was going to say, that had to be one of the more special moments as you look back on your life, probably, that I would assume every child, but particularly when you're an artist and you're, you know, you're looking for, you know, I mean, obviously you're in a, a business where every day, you know, the, the critical acclaim is everything. I mean, you know, how people view what you do, you put, you put it all out there, let's put it that way, and that had to feel wonderful to you. It really did, and you know, for a long time, I resented the fact that my father never came to any of my sporting events. You know, he was never there when I made the perfect pass to the right wing who scored the soccer goal. Or, you know, he was never there, you know, when I won, you know, a racquetball tournament or what have you. Um, and I realize now, you know, what type of time it took behind the easel, what type of sacrifice it took so that the three of us kids could be clothed and, and fed and educated and uh, and I'm going through the same sort of struggle with my own family. As a matter of fact, when we vacation together now, I bring my watercolors with me, and they personally take an interest in what I'm doing. There are times when my kids will come in from the ocean dripping wet, and there on the dining room table is a watercolor I've been working on, and the first thing I shout out is, do not drip water on my watercolor. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and they, they take a look. Yeah, that's looking really good, and uh, so you know it, it's it's been a. It's I bet really you're louder wonderful. than that. Yeah, and, you know, at that particular moment on that plane ride, that really was um, um, uh, the first moment where I said I belong. Yeah. And and really, what validated that later was a show that I had uh, last year. It opened up October the first. And uh, I was in a show at the Vero Beach Museum of Art, and uh, I'm still really pinching myself because uh, the show was called um, In the Tradition of Wyeth, Contemporary Watercolor Masters. Wow. And when they asked me to be in the show, uh, they said that it was going to be Andrew Wyeth and my father, Hubert Shuptrine, and Stephen Scott Young, whom I admire greatly as well. He's a colleague of mine and just a fantastic artist. I've sold some of his paintings in the past, and I've framed his works for 20-some-odd years. And, 
you know, and I framed Andrew Wife's works for years, too. As a matter of fact, for the first nine years of my career, I was his exclusive framer, and I framed for his agent here in Chattanooga. Wow. And, uh, but anyway, they said, yeah, we want you to be in a show with Andrew Wyeth and your father. And, uh, and we want you to submit three of your paintings, and here's the ones we want. Can you get your hands on them? And so I started making phone calls. Long story short, it was a great show, fantastic show, and that Vero Beach Museum of Art is just so beautiful. And, uh. You go your whole life waiting for a moment like that, don't you? Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, when I walked into that show and I saw Andrew Wyeth to the left of one of my paintings and mm-hmm. I saw one of my father's to the right, right, I turned and looked at Bonnie and I said, this is a life moment. This is more than a Kodak moment. I mean, this is, please pinch me, you know, because well, th- this is the ultimate. I think that, you know, the work that you do and the and the fact that you put it all out there and, and take the risks of, of being judged, because that's quite frankly what happens, uh, you know, is so unique, and it's why we admire creativity in our society so greatly, because it, it really does take a special quality. Uh, I'm curious, what are the projects, the major projects right now that you're working on that you could share with us? Well, you know, that uh, uh, I think it was Edward Hopper that said, uh, if I could say it in words, there'd be no reason to paint. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, for me, uh, I always want to find something uh, that I'm very, very passionate about. You know, you've heard the old adage also, you are what you paint. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, um, I think that my subject matter will always be the South and and even more so Appalachia. I'm currently working on a really exciting project. It's a huge body of work on Appalachia, the mountain people and the landscapes. And this is going to be a collection of paintings which will go into a collaborative book with a New York Times best-selling author who writes about the South. And uh, much like in the same spirit of Jericho, the South Beheld, which my father did with James Dickey, I'm going to be doing with this New York Times best-selling author. I'm really excited about it. It'll be about a three-and-a-half-year project, and and it will uh, require me to do a lot of traveling and hiking uh, in and around Appalachia. Uh, I will hike everywhere from North Georgia all the way to Maine. And, uh, and I will, you know, take my camera with me and, and experience the people and see these absolutely gorgeous sunsets and sunrises over the valleys from the mountains and, and learn all about the mountain culture. So I'm really, really excited about this. I'm, I'm still in the planning stages of this and, and, uh, Basically, the project exists only as a business plan right now, but I expect that, you know, by January 1st this year, that or this next year, that I'll be uh, working on this. And so that's that's what I've got cooking right now. Well, we'll certainly uh, explore that with you as you get further down the road, and maybe there's uh, another show we can do when you're in the throes of that, and we can bring that and the reality of what you're doing to the attention of so many people that would be interested when you're finished with it. So keep us in mind as you're traveling down that that road. I do want to ask you uh, about realism and and the style of of painting that you do and what what it means to be a realist artist. Well, you know, my father used to um, he used to not refer to his paintings as as realistic or realism. He used to call them realizations, and for him, it was more of a moment in time. 
um, the, particularly the people that he painted, um, had uh, he had a way of depicting the people where you could read their face and you could see their story. One one painting in particular that comes to mind is one he did called Sage of the Blue Ridge, which is in your book, and it's an old man that was a hundred years old when my father met him. And you can just look in his eyes, and you can see the the whole biography of this man. Um, you can see his whole life, his struggles, his journeys, his pain, and his love of the land. And, uh, you know, for me, realism is a way for me to express something very dramatic. For instance, I like the way a shadow cast of a tree casts itself across the side of a house, or I'm constantly looking at light and shadow and various different abstract shapes uh, in our natural landscape, or I'm constantly looking for a certain expression in a person's face, an expression that, that says pain or says pride of land or, or that, that says uh, hope. So, um, you know, realism is uh, all I know. It's in my blood. And I can't really think of any other style that I could possibly paint in. You know, every person that deals with great success goes through ups and downs. Uh, this show is about that. It's about the journey of life and and getting to whatever each of us, as I said before, terms our success. Uh, can you share with us maybe those times of uncertainty and how you overcame them? Uh, I think it's important for people to recognize that we don't all travel according to Hoyle. We all have various times when things become difficult, maybe we lose hope, maybe our dreams are shattered or, you know, events occur in our lives, tragedies and different things like that, and we've got to kind of pull ourselves back up, and, and it's the getting up that's important, and ever all of us do it differently. For you, what was, what was that like for you, and, and can you share that with us? Yes, well, for me, you know, the, the, the three most difficult hurdles that I've probably had in, in my journey have have been, you know, first of all, to, it's been really hard to add the moniker watercolor artist to my name, you know, after so many years of being known as a handmade gold leaf framer. Um, and then also, it's been really hard, and it still is, this is an ongoing thing, uh, to step out of my father's shadow and to be known for the merit of my work and not just because I'm Hubert Sheptrine's son. And, you know, and then I'd say, you know, third, it's, it's been really hard to take that leap of faith that so many artists are trying to survive as a full-time artist, you know, take that leap of faith and say, hey, you know, let's, you know, let's see if we can make this, uh, you know, and, and uh, maybe I can be the breadwinner on just the, on just the sales of my paintings. But, you know, I will say, you know, it's just been an incredible journey. You know, raising a family has been, without a doubt, the most incredible thing. I mean, I've, I've enjoyed that the most. You know, I'm so blessed to have Bonnie and my two fabulous and handsome boys and, uh, and the memories that we've made along the way, too. Uh, and the fact that they have bought in to, to my dream, that they're, they're making my dream possible, you know, to be, uh, to be an artist uh, is just phenomenal. I mean, it's just, it's true love. You know, I, I think that you're doing something in your life that probably a lot of people maybe hoped that they would do or wanted to do, and, and it certainly comes with, I'm sure at times, difficulty and self-doubt and, you know, moments of where you just 
you know, like when your father just told you how how special you were as an artist. I mean, it seems to me that that's really what what it's all about. At least for me, when I look at it, it's kind of like you know we're all on this path, and each of us have to pick you know what it is, or maybe it's 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 what we choose to do and how well we do it, or don't do it, and how we cope with those things. It seems to me that you know. Uh, You've developed a kind of a a, a, a calm to you um, that that comes across in meeting you. I saw that, and it seems that 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 creative spirit has really engulfed you. And I'm, I think that we're going to see incredible things from you, especially from this journey you're about to to take over the next three and a half years. And certainly, uh, uh, I think it's something that will be a great contribution to our society. And, and I'm curious, as you look on your life, could you see it any other way? Did you always know that this is what it was going to be from the very early stages with your father? You know, I, I always thought that, that we'd just be one big happy family sitting around the Thanksgiving table and my father would still be alive and and uh, and I would be 49 years old as I am today and, and my sons would be 16 and 14 and we'd be, you know, having... Thanksgiving dinner together, and we'd be, um, you know, we'd all be looking in admiration at the great patriarch at the end of the table, and we'd just be this sort of Waltons type of family. And and um, you know, as, as time progressed, you know, I realized that that was never going to happen. That I that I had to build my own family. That I wasn't going to have that perfect happy family, and that uh, and but that things happen for a reason. And if it weren't for Bonnie. Uh, she would never have have allowed me to know that I've been so blessed with every experience as the next step in the journey. Uh, you know, she's allowed me clarity so that I could see the forest for the trees, and uh, she's shown me that you know every hard step just simply means the next step, and that's the way I feel about so many of the people that have affected my life. You know, not just my parents and my uncle Jim, but also my teachers at Baylor and. Uh, a wonderful lady named Eve Oldham, uh, who also is a, f- a phenomenal artist in this region, um, and a man named Will Montague, who became a, an extremely close friend of my family and and uh, became godfather to my two children. And, of course, great friends like Steve and Vivian Bettis. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my one of my agents, uh, Rochelle Haddock, uh, who worked for my company for over 13 years. And helped me get where I am today, and and, uh, and Elizabeth Vile, who worked for us, too, just uh, countless hours and, and gave of her time. You know, I feel like all these people that have come in and out of my life have, have gotten me to this point today, and, and so I have no regrets. It's been phenomenal. Well, as you look back on your journey, it's a question I often ask our guests, and we've been doing a show now for almost nine, ten months. What do you see as the greater meaning of life in the next few seconds? I'd like to just get your short view of that. You know, I think the meaning of life is is to be alive and to love. You know, I've always loved the lyrics to the song Nature Boy, which was written by Eden Abes and performed by Nat King Cole. You know, I had the pleasure of hearing Steve Miller of uh, the Steve Miller Band perform it in California one time. And, And the line that gets me the most is where it says, the greatest thing you'll ever learn it's just to love and and be loved in return. So that's to me. That's what the greater meaning of life is all about: is you know helping each other along the way, the journey with love. Well, 
you know, Alan, our time's up. Uh, I'd like to thank you for sharing your journey with us and the wisdom you've gained from it. From it. Uh, this is Jimmy Gould uh, thanking our listeners and Alan Shuptrine for sharing his journey with us. Uh, please stay tuned to A Current Life and Voice America Variety Channel until next Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern. And until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, and success. And to you, my new friend, Alan, and to Bonnie, uh, much love, and thank you for giving us your time. And I hope that you'll come back and do this again with us. I really appreciate it, and I know our listeners have learned a lot from you. Well, thank you, Jimmy. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Best of luck to you. Thank you. Take care. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week.